How did it all begin? Where did you come from? How did the earth start? I mean, these are questions that philosophers have been pouring countless hours of thinking and speculation and pontification and thinking high thoughts of thoughts on thoughts. Some have gone so far into the thinking and to the mind that they have arrived at absurdity. They're just scratching the head and holding the chin. And we've got the caricature of that to prove it, don't we? But the, the question itself isn't just left to the philosopher. The scientist is scouring the creation, asking the question. Uh, the theologian is looking into the Bible, asking the question. Even the businesswoman. As she lays down at night and she looks on at the night sky, is either thinking to herself or just asking the person next to her, how did this all happen? It's amazing. The Bible gives us a simple answer that requires a large dose of faith. God spoke. Have you ever thought about the level of power and authority that is involved with a statement like that? I mean, I tend to speak a lot. Anyone that knows me well knows this. I find that it's one of my shortcomings when I'm reading the Proverbs. I'm regularly confronted with this one. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Yikes. Glad that the Holy Spirit is willing to work on this work in progress. But I'll tell you, when I speak, well, hmm, not much of anything happens when I do. I love to go out to the canal during the summertime and it's a great opportunity to fish, especially at the nighttime. You see the moon out across the water. It's kind of still and serene. And I'll tell you, the best thing is the 40-pound striper at the end of the line. Now, while I'm out there fishing, I often declare, if there are any meat bags in the water right now, would you please make your way to my line so that I can bring you in? But what happens when I declare that? Well, I tend to catch the bottom and lose about $15 worth of line. How about my Caesar Milans in the room? Do I have any dog whisperers? Yeah, we've seen the dog whisperer, haven't we? He gives a simple command and the dog obeys immediately. I mean, he could take a rotten, disobedient animal and teach it to obey a command. I like to bring out my inner Caesar quite often. My dog, Fergus, I let him out of the house. He goes and he does his business. And I call out from the front door, Fergus, come back in here. And what does he do? He looks at me like I'm the world's biggest doofus and then rolls in the grass. Not much happens when I speak. When we come into the text of Genesis 1, we see that when God speaks, well, things go a lot differently. When God speaks, something happens. When he proclaims his will, creation bursts forth into existence. And once it has been formed by the power of his will, it is by the power of his word that creation is held together. And it obeys his every command so that when God says to creation, jump, creation is asking, how high? Remember, we're working through this series. It's called Unglued, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. 
And we're going to see how through the sinful, willful choice of one man, sin entered into the world. As a result, his lineage, the creation itself, became unglued. Praise God, though, we see that grace is the theme of Genesis, and by the power of his grace, he doesn't let it fully unravel, but he holds it together. But for something to become unglued, it must have first been glued together, didn't it? What was the glue of creation? God's word. God's sovereign, eternal, efficacious, lovely word. And this is what we'll see here in these verses. So let's get to that text, Genesis 1, and let's hear it. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with the water swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures 
according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's stop there. So from this text, we're going to see three implications of the passage that deal with God speaking. The first thing that we see is that God spoke intentionally. You see, when someone speaks, they do so for a reason. We can say all that we want that, oh, I didn't mean to say what I said, but when you really boil it down to the matter, we did. We chose to speak. We said something because we wanted to. So when God spoke, he must have spoke for a reason. Now think of this. The neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, especially when you couple that with a a secular, humanistic, atheistic worldview, tells you that you are a cosmic accident. So even if you find this accident to be incredible, wonderful, a statistical anomaly, nonetheless, the worldview is saying that you are just a blip out of countless thousands of particles and specks within a vast universe. This type of anomaly that they're suggesting that you are makes the Powerball seem like a good financial investment for you. I mean, we're talking about odds that are so out of line with reason, I kind of raise an eyebrow when I'm told that atheists are the reasonable party dealing with the facts and only the facts. I just recently read a chapter in a book titled Neo-Darwinism and the Origin of Biological Form and Information. I mean, it was a real page-turner. In one of the sections, the author addressed what mathematicians call a combinatorial search problem. It actually is what it sounds like. It simply refers to the number of possible ways that a set of objects could be arranged or combined. So if you had three cups, how many ways could you arrange it? Now think about a bike lock for a minute. Uh, The lock has four dials, it has ten digits. How long would it require a thief if you left your precious bicycle outside to break this lock? Pending he doesn't have bolt cutters, of course. Well, the math goes like this. It's ten times ten times ten times ten, ten to the fourth power, ten thousand possible ways to combine the lock. Now, say that you give this guy fifteen hours and he can go through a combination one at a time, every 10 seconds, which he is a wizard at this then because it takes me like 30 seconds to put in one combination. So he's at it for 15 straight hours. He doesn't stop. How many of those combinations would he make his way through? About half. So there's a one in two chance that he would be able to open up this lock. That's pretty good odds, isn't it? I'd take those odds. But what about if we enter into the realm of biology, assembling a new gene to make a new protein? What are the odds that this would randomly occur in natural processes? Well, Doug Axe asked that question. He wanted to know what it would take to create a small 
uh, a gene that could create a small protein. A small protein consists of about 150 amino acids. He uh, is a biologist. He got his PhD at Caltech, studied at the University of Cambridge in their medical research center. He's written many books. And uh, one thing that he noticed is that when he was looking at this research that there's 10 to the 77th power combinations for one gene to arrive that would make a protein, a small protein. Now let's put that number into context. So if you think of the total universe, there's 10 to the 65th power atoms in all of the universe. I mean, we're talking about a huge number here, right? 10 to the 77th power. So when he compared this number to the number of years that scientists suggest that life has existed on the earth with the total number of organisms that they believe have arisen in the earth, do you know what he found? Let me quote to you. For even a single relatively simple functioning protein to arise, the mutation selection mechanism would have time to search just a tiny fraction of the total number of relevant sequences. One, ten trillion, trillion, trillionth of the total possibilities. You know what we call that in mathematics? Statistical zero. Friends, I'm telling you, go get those Powerball tickets today. You're going to win. Now, why do atheists cling to this neo-Darwinian model if the evidence falls short? Well, we need to be clear on something. Atheism is a worldview. It stems from a worldview called materialism. I'm not talking about you going out and shopping and buying a bunch of things, which there is that kind of materialism. This materialism is the view that the material things are the only reality and that knowledge of material objects is the only valid claim to knowledge. So that if someone's talking about spiritual things, well, it's it's a spurious conversation. It's their opinion. It's subjective. It's relative to them. Materialism denies the existence of a creator and views man as a soulish machine so that you are not special. You are not significant. And when you add natural selection into the mix, well, there's no reason that you should treat each other nicely. So go ahead and road rage at that guy on the road. It doesn't matter. Well, for the life of me, I just can't understand why people would find this worldview helpful. But what does the Bible talk about? Let's talk about the biblical worldview for a moment. When you enter into the Psalms, they, they speak of that intentionality, don't they, of God creating things. We just read in Psalm 104, He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, verses 19 to 22. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for its setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep out. The young lion roars for their prey seeking their food from God. So he's very specific in his intentionality. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. God's word is the glue of creation. So what should our response be? Well, Psalm 110 tells us this. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pastures. So God created with intentionality. He spoke for a reason. 
we also see that he really spoke in history. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 1, I mean, much ink has been spilt speculating over what is happening in this one chapter of the Bible. And with much fear and trepidation as a pastor, I come to this text to open it to you. Now, one of the things that can happen is we're picking a Bible passage apart. Notice what I said there, picking it apart is we place ourselves in the position of standing over the text. I'm in control. I'm telling, or I'm pulling away the things that I think are true and the things that I think are false. But then we should never enter the word of God like that. I don't care what opinion you have of this passage, the text stands over you. It is interpreting you. David And Psalm 131 gave a a good attitude or disposition on how we should approach God in the mysteries of things. He said this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So it's with that attitude that we come into this passage. Let's talk about two things we shouldn't do with this passage and then talk about what it is saying. We should, first of all, not avoid or ignore this passage. You know, when you come into a passage and there's a lot of views and a lot of different speculations about it, we can take the approach or the tack to say, well, this must be unimportant. It doesn't really matter to the whole scheme of things. So I'm just going to check this one out of my mind and move on to more important things that I really can know. Well, what happens when we avoid hard stuff? We become mentally flabby. I uh, think of this with regard to the next generation and how it can cause them to suffer. Think of this. They go to church. They've never been exposed to tough questions before about the faith. They walk into a college where a professor with an axe to grind builds sophisticated arguments dismantling the things that they've always heard. Now trust me, even while maybe the church is saying, I don't want to deal with the tough questions, the professor is more than happy to deal with the tough questions in the classroom. Why is he doing this? Well, because we all want to justify our worldview. We're all evangelists for our worldview. Whatever you find yourself trying to convince other people of, that happens to be your worldview. And so this young Christian is left with the thought, well, do I commit intellectual suicide or do I deny my faith? And you know what we call that? A false dilemma. Because the Bible never asks you to pursue an irrational faith. Faith is not a blind leap off of a mountain. Biblical faith evaluates the world and sees God's hand behind everything so that when you're looking at the created order, you're seeing his fingerprints on the created order. Now there's this overwhelming evidence that there is a God and we can look at it and we can explain it away. You can explain anything away. That's why it takes faith to look at these things. But faith is never blind. It is not naive. It is not obtuse. It is always reasoned. It is measurable. And we see that in the scriptures. Here's another thing that this text should not do. 
it should not divide Christians. You see, Christians must show charity when good-thinking Christians hold different views on what I would say is a secondary matter as the age of the earth. I am leery of the tendency to make the age of the earth a test of orthodoxy. And especially when we look at the Christian theologians who have come about over the centuries. You go back all the way to Augustine. He was wrestling with this question. So we have pre-enlightenment Augustine, pre-scientific Augustine, who didn't hold to a young earth view. Now, do I agree with him? No, I don't. But I so value the faith of Augustine. I value the theology that he left the church that would strengthen the church for years to come. So there's a way to look at a Christian brother or sister in the eye and say, you know, I think you're totally wrong on this point, and when we see Jesus, he's going to clear it up to, so that you know I'm right. <laughs> but I know that you love him and that you're a follower of him, and we can have fellowship together. Now let's get into the text. What do we see in here? We see that the creation account is orderly. If you look at verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When you look at this text, really Moses, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that there's two problems. The earth has no form and it is void. It doesn't have life. So God sees this disorder and absence of life and he addresses it in these six creation days. Notice the symmetry. First three days he spends forming. Day one, two, three. Light and sky and sea, land and plants. And then the next three days, he, or uh, three days, he's filling. So he's giving us the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, the birds and the fish, the animals and man. Well, why is this symmetry important? Well, I believe it reveals something special about God. He's orderly. And when you're looking in the text, you see that word separation, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7. God's separating distinct things that do not belong together. Again, a picture of his order. Now Moses, I mean, I think of Moses, the author of this, and he must have just been wowed as the Spirit of God was giving him this revelation and he's writing it down. He grew up in the Egyptian courts and he was raised in their philosophy and theology. So this creation story, as he's learning of it, was in great contradiction to the chaotic battles that he had heard of for the forming of the earth. But here he's writing of God and he's God speaking and God's forming and God's filling with ease. There's no wrestling match. Just order and authority and completion. Psalm 33, 9, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood. God says, jump. Creation says, how high? What about the genre of this passage? Uh, when we read different types of literature, we expect different things of it, don't we? If you're reading an allegory, for example, uh, you wouldn't treat that like history, would you? You'd say this is kind of fanciful, heightened language. It means something different. It's not recounting fact. Or when you read poetry, and there's lots of metaphorical language that's being used, uh, you expect some of that to be heightened language. 
But when you're reading bi biography or history or something of that nature, well, you expect to understand this as the plain meaning of what the author is saying. So let's role play for a minute. You guys like to play pretend? I think so. I don't have any Play-Doh, though, so we'll just stick with this. Let's put ourselves back in the shoes of Moses' audience who's hearing him speak, and let's pretend that we're hearing this in the way that they would have heard it. When Genesis was read to the Israelites, they heard historical narrative. Moses was reporting events that he wanted them to believe actually happened. They would not have uh, walked away saying, oh, that was a powerful myth that Moses just gave us. In fact, that biblical revelation was replacing myths that they had been holding to for generations. Likewise, they wouldn't have said, oh, this is metaphor, this is literature. How do we know this? Well, Moses uses a Hebrew tense called the Yaiq Tol. It's a tense that if you're living back then and you're hearing someone speak in this sort of way, you would have thought to yourself, oh, I know what I'm dealing with right now. I'm hearing history. So that when you're looking through the Hebrew narrative, it's all over the place. When you're looking at the poetry, it's almost non-existent. So when you get into Joshua 2, for example, you see this form 20 times. You know how many times it appears in Genesis 1? 51 times. I mean, we are dealing with narrative, not poetry. Could they have understood the word day to mean a geological age? I doubt it. When we step back and let the grammar speak, the plain meaning of the text, I think that Moses' readers heard what, they plainly, what we're plainly reading here. That God spoke in six days, and that everything that is taking place in this passage took place in these 144 hours of six days in this text. So let's take a look at these days. God spoke in six days, right? So remember, God's word is the only tool that he is using. It's the glue of creation. He says to creation, jump. Creation says how high. We see this in the text. And God said, and it was so. There's no delays. There's no time gaps. It's just easy. It's a mere utterance. It makes me think of, um, maybe you've read The Magician's Nephew in the Chronicle of Narnia series where Aslan is speaking the creation. And it's this beautiful song that he's singing and he's walking about and as his mouth is open, the green begins to form around him and spread out like a pool. And then flowers are appearing on the hillsides and he's moving forward and the tempo of the song increases and the birds start appearing and out of the trees the song increases in celebration and more and more creation is coming forth. This is the idea I think we have here as we're reading Genesis 1. So let's look at these days. The first day we see God says in verses 3 and 5, let there be light, and light separated from darkness. How is this light present? Because it's not until day 4 that we see that the sun, the moon, and the stars were spoken into creation. Probably the light came from God himself. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness. 
It's interesting when you look at Genesis chapter 1 and then you go all the way back to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, it seems like the Bible bookends with God being the only source of light to creation. Revelation 22, verse 5, And night will be no more, and there will be no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Another thing I want you to observe in the text is that God is giving things names. What's in a name? He's giving the creation a name. The text would probably read something like this, And God called to the light day. And he called to the darkness night. You see, this Hebrew would have heard that and thought, that's authority. He's in charge of those things. He's responsible for those things. As you read on in the Bible, in the books of Kings and Daniel, you see that Nebuchadnezzar would come in and take over Jerusalem. And he would take a king as a puppet and he would stall him, and he would give that king a new name. He was basically saying, who's your daddy? Right? I'm in charge here. God is sovereignly giving names to all the created order. Day two, see in sky, he's separating them. We see this expanse. A lot of people wonder what that is. Uh, It might have been some layer that separated the waters above and below. So we would have below the water that would become the ocean. Maybe the water that is above would be that water that was used for the great flood of Noah's time. Day 3, verses 9 to 13, explains how the land was formed and plant life came about. Notice the phrase, according to its kind and their own kind. Moses, again, giving us a rational, orderly understanding of what we see in creation being as it is. This is how God intended it to be. So that when oak trees cast their seed, you don't expect a daisy to pop up out of the ground, do you? You see another oak tree and seagrass reproduces seagrass. Day four, the sun, the moon, the stars. Now what I find incredible is the position of the earth in the creation. It's always looking from the earth's perspective outwards. So that when you're reading this text, it seems to us that planet Earth is a privileged planet. The universe only gets this brief mention, oh yeah, and God made trillions and trillions of stars that speckle the night sky. No big deal. Let's get back to the more important thing. God creating the Earth, organizing things, getting them ready. So that if you're ever feeling down, I want you to think about this for a minute. Do I matter? Am I significant? There's two views that are ever going to be coming at you nowadays with that question. You have this one understanding of the universe. Victor Stenger would say, it's hard to conclude that the universe was created with special cosmic purpose for humanity. And Carl Sagan would say that we must rid ourselves of the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe. It doesn't matter that you were born. It doesn't matter that you die. You're just trillions of cells amongst trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions ad nauseum atoms and particles in the universe. Or you can find your meaning in Genesis 1. 
where our home is treated as the bell of the ball. The universe is a side note. And we'll see that next week that humanity is the capstone of creation. As you read these days in Genesis, I want you to envision a contractor and a designer preparing a home for someone to live in. This is what God's doing. He's preparing earth for the crown of his creation, humankind, and with every care, he lays out every detail. Have you ever worked on a project that you kind of understand, you know what you're doing? Maybe it's building a deck or putting together a nice piece of furniture or jewelry or all those things I don't know how to do. And as you're doing this, you're taking these systematic steps, and each step along the way, you're stepping back and saying, wow, this is going good. I'm really excited about what's happening right now. This is enjoyable. Seems to be what we see here in the text, right? Along each step of the way, God's stopping and he's saying it was good. In fact, in the Hebrew, we see that he says that seven times. It's emphatic. It means something like that God's creation is complete. It's perfect. He didn't miss a detail. He covered every nook and cranny. It's just as he intended it to be. Day five, animal life fills two of the three domains of the planet, the sea and the sky. I mean, it must have been a sight to see whales and sharks and dolphins, lakes filling with those fish that I love to catch, like bass and walleye and northern pike. The owl, for the first night, hooting. The sparrow in the bush. The planet is teeming with life. All of these beautiful creatures coming out of the mind of God and he has perfectly engineered them to do just what he intended them to do. And he made them from his own good pleasure. Day six. Animals and humans. I love a good cliffhanger, so we're going to skip this one. Just note that animals were created from the tiniest insect to the great African elephant. God spoke. It happened. But we're going to come back to this next week. Let's apply this now. We've got a couple of minutes here. Think over what we've discussed. So God spoke intentionally. He spoke in history. He spoke in six days. And we noted that he spoke to create a special planet called Earth. What do you do with something like that? Let's get back into a story we talked about two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I shared from the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Now, you might remember that Einstein was frustrated with his new discovery of the theory of relativity and the implications that the universe has a definite beginning. And as Einstein looked at the world, he wanted an eternal universe. He didn't want a creator that he would have to be accountable to. And so he created this thing, the cosmological constant, that was called the fudge factor. 1927, the expanding universe is observed by astronomer Edwin Hubble. That's why we have that Hubble telescope that has made some of those beautiful pictures you've seen. Looking through the 100-inch telescope at California's Mount Wilson Observatory, Hubble discovered a redshift in the lights from every observable galaxy. Indeed, the universe was moving away from us. 1929, Einstein made the pilgrimage to Mount Wilson to look through Hubble's telescope for himself. And what he saw was irrefutable evidence 
the observational evidence showed that the universe is expanding. He had to throw the fudge factor out the window, and he consequently said that that was the greatest blunder of his life. Now he would redirect his purposes to find the box top to the puzzle of life. Einstein wanted to know how God created the world. He stated, I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts, the rest, details. Unfortunately, Einstein was still blinded in his search because he subscribed to a pantheistic God, which is the idea that God's a part of everything. He is everything. You're God, the chair is God, that piece of dust back right there, that's God. But when you look at creation, it is self-evident that God is not everything. He stands apart from it. He is outside of it. He's perfectly directing it. So what did Einstein miss? What could you miss? That God doesn't want you just to know what he did. He wants you to know him. He is a personal God. He wants to have a relationship with you. The God who spoke with His Word and the Word was the glue of creation and then sin unglued everything is the God who would send His Son into the world to re-glue creation back together again. John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So why did Jesus come? He came to restore the creation. John tells us this, that you can have a relationship with God to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in someone's name? To recognize their authority in your life, to recognize their personhood. To see them by faith, I would say in Jesus' case. To all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gives you the right to a very personal relationship. He gives you the right to be called a child of God. He, he ends this sequence by saying, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's right side, he has made him known. So the God who spoke everything into existence is the same God who is willing to speak through his son and call you to be his child. And the Bible says that you can have that by trusting in Jesus by faith. The same God who said, let there be light is willing to shine light into the darkness of your heart. Don't be enamored by the thought of a God don't be one of those intelligent design peoples that just sees design and we can't know him. There's no way to have a personal relationship with him. You have to move from general revelation, which is just observing things in creation, to special revelation, which is God's son, Jesus. And if you come to know him, you will not be disappointed. You will meet this real, personal God. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?